Today's podcast is sponsored by Google. Each day online can be a balancing act for parents. They want their children to safely explore the digital world, but also want to protect the precious offline moments they enjoy together. That's why the YouTube Kids app offers families a safer and simpler online video experience for children. As well as allowing parents to set limits on screen time, it also allows parents to choose a content library for their child based on age, or start from scratch and handpick videos and channels for their child to watch. To find out more, download the app today. Search YouTube Kids. Hello and welcome to Room of Balls, where I, Katie Balls, speak to today's trailblazers. My guest today was born in Gateshead in the northeast. She got into politics at an early age. Her mother was a Labour member and she herself joined the party age 15. After attending a comprehensive school, she went on to study at Oxford, becoming co-chair of the Labour Club during her studies. After graduating, she managed a refuge in Sunderland for women and children fleeing domestic abuse before entering the Commons in 2010. She hasn't always backed the winner when it comes to the Labour Party, supporting David Miliband to replace Gordon Brown, Yvette Cooper for Labour leader in 2015, and a year later, after becoming one of 172 Labour MPs to express no confidence in Jeremy Corbyn, voting for Owen Smith. Corbyn's office placed her in the Cool Group negative group in its rankings of Labour MPs. However, these days she is a favourite among the Labour leadership. She backed Keir Starmer as leader and became the Shadow Chief Secretary to the Treasury last year. In the latest reshuffle, which happened just after our chat, she was promoted to Shadow Education Secretary. Speaking about her upbringing, she said, Poverty is not inevitable. It is about the choices that politicians make. Poverty is not about coats or food in and of themselves, but the power to make choices for yourself. My guest today is Bridget Philipson. So Bridget, thanks very much for coming on the podcast today and also coming in in person. To begin, we ask everyone, would you describe yours as a happy childhood? Yes, absolutely. We didn't always have a great deal. My mum was a single parent, so she brought me up on her own. So it was, you know, quite tough at times for her. I guess as a child, you're you're shielded from much of it. Your parents will seek to shield you from it. But it was a time when there wasn't much by way of childcare, so she wasn't able to work until I started school so that just means you don't always have a great deal of money I grew up in a council house in Washington uh, the original Washington in the northeast of England best Washington the best Washington the original Washington uh, the home of George Washington's ancestors and it was you know it was a pretty tough time for the community unemployment was pretty high crime was high and we didn't always have it easy but looking back I reflect on the fact that for all it wasn't easy for her it wasn't easy for us other people that I grew up with had it a lot harder and I've gone on to enjoy opportunities and chances that have not been available to all of my contemporaries. Now you mentioned your mother who was a single parent she also was a Labour member and you've spoken in the past about how you recall you know memories of playing in the corner of the village hall during constituency meetings so an early political upbringing? We were just the wider family we we always you know watched the news talked about what was going on my grandparents as well we were very close to my grandparents they didn't live very far away they were both nurses in the NHS so Politics was always pretty high on their agenda as well. They weren't party members, but they were very keen about following what was going on in the world and had a really strong sense of social justice and connected to going to church as well. It was all part of that same tradition. And for me, being a part of the Labour Party was like having an extended family in many ways. You you wanted to work together to 
build a better community. So I ended up going along to these meetings just playing in the corner and running around outside. I wasn't particularly interested as a small child and became more interested in my own right. But if I didn't go along, my mum didn't get to go along. So that was how it went, really. Now, you yourself chose to join the Labour Party in 1998 at 15. So it sounds as though... Even if it wasn't called Labour growing up, there was a sense that that was where your family leaned towards. When it came to school, did you stand out as being super political or was it something which kind of you kept below? I was always very interested in politics and I used to love talking about what was going on, debating all the big issues. I mean, I was quite I was quite shy when I was younger, so I, I loved talking about it, but I didn't always feel comfortable at speaking out sometimes. But... I was pretty unusual amongst my friends in that I would often spend my Friday evenings going along to uh, Labour Party meetings when I was there, when I was a student, which wasn't always what my friends wanted to do. But I also was really fortunate to go to a great school that encouraged you to take an interest in the world in the wider sense. So, you know, there was a big campaign at the time, obviously, around international development and the Jubilee Debt campaign. And for me, politics was about what you could change locally, nationally, but also the impact that politicians make across the world. And I felt that very strongly. So at school, it sounds like you were a fairly well-behaved child. Is that fair? I, I took my study seriously. I did. Um, Friday I did, night's wild. I, well, I, I did like to spend, I spent quite a lot of my youth going to indie gigs across Newcastle and Sunderland. But no, I took my studies pretty seriously. I loved school and I was really fortunate to have like great teachers who were really encouraging. You went on to study at Oxford. Did you just decide to do that of your own accord? Did you have a teacher say, you know, you should be applying for this? The teachers in my school were, were amazing and what really sticks in my mind was they were really keen that we were able to achieve all that we were capable of and that we used our talents to the best of our ability. And I remember they did organise trips to Oxford and Cambridge and I'd heard they were organising a trip to Oxford and I was going to put my name forward but I hadn't quite got around to doing it yet. And I got a message sent to me in class to say, Mr Hurst, the deputy head teacher, wants to see you in his office immediately. And I thought, oh my God, you know, what's, what's this about? Because he was... He was a real legend in the school, but people really feared him at the same time. And I went along to his office and he said, we've got this trip organised, your name's not down. I expect your name to be down on this list by the end of the week or, you know, there'll be consequences. So in the best possible spirit, like he really wanted me to go and see if I liked it and if it was for me. And yeah, I did decide to apply after that. So you get into Oxford. What are your first impressions of it? How does it compare to Washington when you arrive? It feels quite different. I mean, it was an amazing place to study and I was so fortunate and the opportunities and the teaching and the facilities were just incredible. I never felt that I shouldn't be there. I always felt like I'd won my place there on merit and I wanted to make the best of it. But it did feel like a very different world and it was more about, I suppose I hadn't had the same opportunities that a lot of people had had. I just found it, I suppose, very middle class. Less so, you know, that there was that rigid structure, but more just people who had a bit more money. And I realised that actually having a bit of money can make life a lot easier for a lot of people. And some of the opportunities that people had had around travel and further study and gap years, I mean, that had just never crossed my mind. It wasn't something I ever would have considered. But I learned, you know, how to get on with people from such a range of backgrounds. And that was the same when I was younger. It was... It's a pretty diverse community at home as well. Now, you've become co-chair of the Labour Club. Can you talk us through the Labour scene at that time? Because we hear a lot about, particularly when we've had, you know, ministers come on this programme, you know, Tory scene, you know, Boris Johnson. All that. So what did um, 
Labour looked like that at the point because the backdrop is the Labour Party doing pretty well. Yeah, so when I was, when I was at university, Labour was in government. So I was there after the, you know, they'd won the second term in 2001. I, I went to Oxford in 2002. I remember all of the, I remember fox hunting was a big issue, you know, the government moving to, to outlaw fox hunting. Obviously, lots of heated discussion around what Labour was doing in government. But I suppose the difference was that we were seeking to influence the actions of the Labour government rather than seeking to get one elected in the first place. And that's a that's a luxury that Labour supporting students today don't have. So I suppose that is the big difference, that we were in government, we were changing things. We can disagree about whether every policy was the right one or whether the direction was always right. I mean, I, I thought the Labour government did tremendous things. I did then and I still do now. But it was arguing amongst ourselves about how to make that better still, not how we win power once more. And did you have any um, notable contemporaries from that time who we now see in Labour circles? Maybe maybe you're the shining star in it. No. Um, <laughs> there's quite a few people I'm still in touch with and they've gone on to do a range of different things. Now, you graduate. At that point, did you have any idea that you wanted to go into politics as a full-time career? Obviously, it's something that you're very interested in and that interest has grown. What I immediately wanted to do was move back to the northeast. I really wanted to go back to the northeast. I missed it a lot being away. And I didn't think I would miss it quite so much, but I really did. And I was keen to return home. What did you most miss about? Family, people, just a real pull. I do have a really strong sense of being from the northeast and being very proud of the northeast and of my community. And I wanted to go back and I wanted to, you know, get involved in work that made a difference in some sense in the community. And you go on to manage a refuge, which I mentioned in the introduction, for women and children fleeing domestic abuse. Was that something your mother had been involved in from her charity work too? Yeah, so she set up the charity that I then went on to work for. So she was one of the founders of it, originally just as a women's group in the 80s, and then they moved into providing domestic abuse services and, and grew in a pretty big way over the years. So I worked for a period of time in local government and then went to work managing one of the brand new refuges after a few different jobs there, managing the brand new refuges that were opened under the Labour government, which was tremendous because for the first time we had a purpose-built refuge that was really designed with the families in mind that needed that kind of service rather than having to convert all buildings or making do with what you had. And we had properly resourced services for women and a recognition of the importance of violence against women, which, you know, I just look now at where we are and wonder what on earth has happened over the course of the last decade that we're still, you know, that we're in a position where rape conviction rates are far lower than they were then. I mean, it breaks my heart to see how I feel things have not, we've not made progress in the way that we should. Was that one of the reasons that you then felt you wanted to be in Parliament, in a place where you actually can affect, ideally within a government, but, you know, in, in that sense, change? It was such an extraordinary privilege to work with women and children going through some of the most difficult experiences that anyone can go through and to make just even a small difference to help them to turn their lives around and to to have a better future. But I just wanted to be part of making an even bigger change on that, you know, not just in terms of legislation and funding, but that wider shift I think we need within society too. Now, you were elected in 2010. So when it came to being selected for Horton and Sunderland South, did you know that you needed to have a seat in the North East effectively? Um, what was the process for getting it? So the boundary changes that had just come in, were coming into force meant that the constituency I'd grown up in was split in two. And I was ultimately selected in Horton and Sunderland South, which was a big part of that seat that I'd grown up in. I just couldn't imagine representing anywhere else than 
my home community. And that's not to say that people can't do a great job being from outside an area and coming in and representing it. For me, that was always, I wouldn't have stood had it not been my local seat. Now, you enter Parliament. What surprised you? It's a period of change for the Labour Party and not in a particularly good way. Well, when I first arrived, obviously the coalition negotiations were still underway, so we didn't have a properly formed government. And I remember being shown around the House of Commons chamber by the doorkeepers who do a tour, and they couldn't at that point tell you on which side you would be sitting because it was still a bit unclear as to what the composition of the government might be. Obviously, I ended up on the opposition benches. I think that they've made lots of changes as well around how to provide better support and induction for MPs because it's, you know, obviously an incredible thing to have been elected for the first time, but you then have to very quickly get on with, you know, dealing with all of the casework that comes in very quickly, wanting to make your maiden speech. And I think things are a bit better now in that regard in helping MPs to get up and running more quickly. Now, there's a Labour leadership contest. (laughs) You back David Miliband. It's your first Labour leadership contest as an MP. And I think lots of people say often surprised by, you know, how rough and ready politics can be. Did it surprise you at all? Was it more civilised? <laughs> it was a perfectly nice contest. I mean, I'd already decided I would back David. I knew him as a North East MP and I thought he would, you know, I thought he'd be a great leader of the party. But no, it was a, it was a very civilised contest. That was still, of course, at the point when we had shadow cabinet elections as well, which have now gone. So it's safe to say that senior colleagues were very keen to uh, have conversations with uh, the newly arrived MPs among us to chat about what was going on in the world. And I suppose you're in a situation where throughout your time in politics, joining the party at 15, then as a student, you're in, as you were talking about earlier, you were debating what a party in power should do. And then you finally get there and the party's out of power. So did that mean it was quite different to what you had expected? Do you have to kind of change how you approach things as someone who wanted to be there impacting things? I think during the 2010 election, it became clear that it was unlikely I would be, in the event I was elected, going to Westminster with the Labour Party in government. So I'd, I'd adjusted to that likely scenario. I suppose it's as time has drawn on that it becomes more and more frustrating that I'm not able to influence in the same way I, the changes I think my constituents really need to see. And over that decade, I've just seen the steady erosion of lots of the services on which they depend. I've seen life get harder for lots of families getting harder still even now and you know no prospect of that changing until after the next election so it just makes me more focused than ever on the need to win come the next election. I mentioned in the introduction the various candidates you backed which up until Keir Starmer wouldn't say you had a winning streak on picking the candidates but it's obviously not the main reason why you pick them you're picking who you think is best not who you think is necessarily going to be picked by everyone else but I wondered how would you describe your politics in terms of on the Labour spectrum because if you look at you know Yvette Cooper, David Miliband, the move to you know replace Jeremy Corbyn I think some people say it looks as though it's on the right of Labour opinion but I mean you're right I haven't always backed the winning candidate but I understand we do still think I've always backed the right candidate but yeah other people disagreed and that's the way it works in a democracy in terms of where where I am in the party I suppose I've always just thought of myself as being a mainstream Labour person so so much of the discussion I think gets is through the prism of Blair and Brown and government. Now, for those of us who weren't elected to Parliament in that time, it feels like a pretty sterile kind of discussion. I suppose how I've always conceived of my politics as being about how 
we can use the power of government as a force for good in people's lives and how we have an an active government enabling people to live free and full lives. And I think sometimes on the left, we're characterised as people that want to restrict opportunity, restrict freedom, stop people from doing things. Whereas I think the restriction comes from the constraints that are placed upon people by society. And actually, if, if we were to open up our economy, to you know, open up society, allow government to give people freedom and choice and control in their lives, that's what drives my politics. That's what held back so many of the people that I grew up with, that they were denied choice and opportunity. And they deserve better from the government that was there at that point. I think what we've seen Keir Starmer setting out and Rachel Reeves and all of us in the Shadow Treasury team is how we forge that new relationship between government and business to allow our country to succeed. And I mentioned again in the introduction that when it came to how if you look at that Corbyn era, which is a very draining period for many reasons in Parliament, partly because we're also, you know, this is a limited time podcast, but we also had the Brexit debate. You were very um, passionately pro-European in terms of the referendum and then later potentially in terms of a second vote. But there was that list of how Corbyn supporters viewed everyone and you were core group negative. As far as I remember, that was not the most negative group. (laughs) There was a group of MPs who were seen as more hostile to Jeremy Corbyn than you. What was it like when you saw these names go around? (laughs) Well, it's always interesting to understand how people view you, I suppose, rather than how you view yourself. I don't view my politics as being about disliking people or being angry about people I just want to be focused on the things that I can actually do and what what we can achieve as a party working together so I think part of the trouble that we've had in politics not just in the Labour Party I think but right across politics in recent years is that we want to categorise people in a way that I think stifles debate and restricts our politics and you know I've just never really gone in for that kind of thing. Now you also, um, ahead of the 2019 election, were quite pressing. And after that 2017 result, it was obviously a shock result in the sense that Theresa May was initially forecast to win this huge majority, actually loses the Tory majority. And you did see lots of Tory MPs panicking they're about to be out of power. And also some on the left saying this is a win for us. I think it was Richard Bergen who said, you know, effectively was characterising as a triumph. Whereas you were warning that if you looked at where things were going, you know, Lots of the factors meant that you shouldn't be complacent about 2019. And you also have a seat which is often one of the first to be called on election night. (laughs) So on the night of 2019, what was that like? Because you might have been called before the exit poll, is that right? So Newcastle beat us this time around. So I had a little bit of prior warning as to where where things were headed. Because we declare so early, they always want us at the count by 10 o'clock. So every election I fought, I've been at the count when the exit poll has come through. So trying to keep a straight face yeah. while looking at um, <laughs> looking at BBC breaking news or whatever it is. Look calm. <laughs> Look calm, don't say anything. But I mean, the scale of what we were facing in 2019 was really dreadful. And when the further projections started coming through about likely losses, it was really difficult. And obviously we declared early. So that meant after... I was re-elected. I went back to my agent's house. We watched the results coming in and to see seat after seat and good colleague after good colleague lose their seats was, I mean, the scale of it was even worse than I'd actually feared. Like I knew it was going to be bad. It was a brutal and awful election and people were incredibly angry and upset with the Labour Party. But it was even worse than I thought it would be. 
Now, you backed Keir Starmer early on, and obviously you're now serving in his shadow cabinet. I was wondering, looking ahead to the next election, obviously it could be could be 2023, could be 2024. What do you think a good result for Labour looks like in that election, given that you were a realist ahead of the 2019 one? I wonder how you see things now. I think we can win next time. I think there is a volatility amongst voters at the moment who've switched between parties, are unhappy with the government, many of them at the moment, and are looking at how things can be different. I think Kia has got what it takes to win for Labour. I think he's got a really broad appeal amongst the public. And I think on the areas that really matter to voters and will increasingly matter, I think particularly crime, which is getting worse, antisocial behaviour levels are a real worry. I think Kia has got a really strong story on the work that he did before he came to Parliament, before he became leader of the party, and a really strong message that we can convey to voters. We've got a big job ahead of us. I mean, undeniably, we've got a big job ahead of us. And the scale of the defeat in 2019 was terrible. But I do believe we can win next time. I'm always optimistic, but I'm not unduly optimistic. You have to be positive in politics, but equally a dose of realism. But I do think we can win. And when you say win, do you think a hung parliament's an opportunity for Labour? Because if you think about it'd be very difficult for the Conservatives in a hung parliament. It seems on paper, obviously in the numbers, it'd be easier for Labour in terms of people they could work with, whether formal or not. I mean, of course, it's challenging. But then much of what has happened in recent years in politics has not been predicted and foreseen. And I think there will be a real mood and appetite for change come the next election. The challenge for the Labour Party is to be the party that is the party of that change that people will want to see. I'm confident that we're going to get there. We had a good conference. Kia set out a lot about the direction we'll be taking and on the big issues that we face as a country. Now, you have been working under Rachel Rees in the Treasury. I wonder, how have you found Rishi Sunak as an opponent over the last year or so? He's on paper the most popular Tory with the public. Um, last year, I think, the most popular politician in the country. And often it's felt as though Labour attack lines bounce off of him. I think increasingly there is a real degree of complacency in the way that the Treasury are approaching so many of the challenges facing our country. So, you know, falling back on what was done during the pandemic is not what is required as we look to the future and the shape of the economy. So I think looking at the budget, we didn't really have anything on those short term pressures. But equally, we need to do a lot more to grow our economy to deal with climate change. But I think that's a really great opportunity to create jobs in every corner of our country, it doesn't feel that the government are rising to the scale of that. So I think, you know, take, for example, the furlough scheme. It was the right thing to do, of course it was. We called for it, the trade unions wanted it too. But time and again, Sunak had to be dragged to extending the scheme when it was clearly needed to be extended to deal with the pandemic, but then failed to make the changes that were necessary to make it work more effectively. You know, no training element running alongside it. Throughout the pandemic, you know, he was often slow on making the changes that were necessary or refusing to do so until it was absolutely staring him in the face. Now, one of the things Rishi Sunak has been heavily criticised for by his own side is ultimately tax rises. And there was interesting polling recently, which I think suggested that the Tories are more heavily associated now with higher taxes than the Labour Party. Do you think there's an opportunity in the next election for Labour to be the party of low tax or fair tax? I don't know how you'd want to describe it. The reason that we've ended up with a high tax budget is because we've got a low growth government and that's been the case for the last 10 years. And if you look at what's projected by the end of the parliament, I mean, growth is absolutely abysmal. I mean, just over 1%. And that's what's driving the Chancellor to higher levels of taxation. So we need to grow our economy and that's the most important thing. In terms of how Labour approaches it, 
I don't think it's right that taxes fall more heavily on working people and businesses in the way that they're doing. I think we need to look to overhaul the tax system to make it fit for the modern age. And that's why we've said we would, you know, bring forward completely different proposals around business tax on business rates. You know, the system hasn't kept pace with the modern world. That's got to change. And we also want to look very closely at all of those tax reliefs that pass through Parliament, just sit on the books, provide limited value for money in many cases. And we want to make sure that we, you know, take how we spend taxpayers' money extremely seriously. People work hard. They want their government to spend money wisely and well. And during the pandemic, I think we've seen staggering levels of waste from the government. They wouldn't have had to proceed with some of the tax increases that they've done had they taken a bit more care with some of the, the kind of appalling contracting practices that we've seen where money's just been doled out without proper processes. And also these are about choices. So, you know, we wouldn't have given a one and a half billion pound tax break to second homeowners and bike landlords in the middle of a pandemic. We would use that money differently. So it's about choices as well as about the level of taxation. Now I just have a few quick fire and we're done. Do you have many friends here, Tories? I don't tend to ask my friends always how they vote. I like to treat them as, uh, as human beings. If you get on with people, you get on with people, and politics doesn't always have to come into that. But in Parliament, are there many Tory MPs that you'd hang out with socially? Or? Because I've got small kids, I try and get back a bit earlier than that, so I don't tend to hang around too much. But you do get... I mean, the good thing about the Select Committee system, and I spent quite a long time in the Public Accounts Committee, is you do get to work with colleagues across Parliament and actually realise that on some areas you can work together really effectively. Now, in Labour circles, I've heard you talked up as a future leader. <laughs> and obviously that's a curse more than, more than not. That's for day one. But I wondered, is that something that's ever crossed your mind, being a Labour leader? All I want is to see Keir Starmer in number 10 and to see Labour winning and in government again. That's all I'm interested in. Okay, great. And then talk about succession after. <laughs> and then, because this is coming out around Christmas time, I was wondering, how do you celebrate Christmas Day? So this year... We are hopefully going to go and get to see my mother-in-law. Obviously, last year that wasn't possible. She's on her own and it was, yeah, it was hard not to do it. So, but with small children, um, it usually means getting up at about five o'clock in the morning or trying to get them to not wake up at five o'clock in the morning to come downstairs and open their presents. So usually having a bit of a nap later on because I'm so exhausted having got up so early with her. with the little ones and then the final question this podcast is one we just ask everyone which is what is the worst advice you've ever received so it's kind of advice that I received so my school was brilliant but they gave us this slightly peculiar careers quiz to fill out which I did and then it got sent off and assessed and it came back suggesting that my career of choice should be a fence builder now that's perfectly noble profession but anyone who's seen my DIY skills would perhaps understand that that's not not perhaps where my talents lie. So I didn't take on that advice to get into fence building and decided I might, yeah, do something that involved, yeah, not DIY. I suspect the teacher that encouraged you to go to Oxford would also be relieved. Well, my teachers were slightly surprised it had recommended a line of work that my other technology lessons at school had suggested was not my strong suit. Thank you, Bridget, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening. And if you'd like to send us your feedback on this podcast or any other many podcasts, please do get in touch. Just email us at podcast at spectator.co.uk. Listener.